0: Welcome to the Modern Art Notes podcast. I'm Tyler Green. This week, a thorough look at 1898 U.S. imperial visions and revisions at the Smithsonian's National Portrait Gallery in Washington. My first guest, Kate Clark LeMay, curated the exhibition with Taina Caragol. Their show examines late 19th century U.S. imperialism, especially the War of 1898, often called the Spanish-American War, the Congressional Joint Resolution to Annex Hawaii, which was passed in July of 1898, the Philippine-American War, which ran from 1899 to 1913, and the US extension of its sphere to include Cuba, Guam, and Puerto Rico. The exhibition particularly, but not exclusively, looks at how portraiture was used by both the US and by the leaders of other countries to establish status within the community of nations and to project power. 1898 is on view through February 25, 2024. Note also that on September 8th and 9th, the National Portrait Gallery will convene over 40 scholars and artists from the Philippines, Guam, Puerto Rico, Hawaii, Cuba, Spain, the United Kingdom, and the U.S. for a two-day symposium motivated by the show. In addition to panel discussions and gallery talks, the event will feature a keynote address by Pulitzer Prize winner Ada Ferrer. All panels in the keynote will take place in the McVoy Auditorium in the Reynolds Center for American Art and Portraiture in downtown Washington. It's free to attend. To RSVP, visit the show page at manpodcast.com and look for the RSVP link. On the second segment of this week's show, I will chat with Maya Cruz Paloleo, one of the artists Taina Caragol features in her essay and the forthcoming catalog for the exhibition. But first, Kate Clark-Lemay, after the break. Support comes from Getty, presenting The Gospel at Colonus, a -a one-of-a-kind theatrical event under the stars that reimagines the story of Oedipus as a redemptive musical celebration. Hailed as, quote, a feast for both the eye and the ear by the Chicago Theatre Review, the show follows the blinded Oedipus as he seeks rest after a lifetime of tragedy. But he is pursued by enemies, including his own son. Based on Sophocles' Oedipus at Colonus from the 5th century BCE, this adaptation blends Greek myth with Black spiritual practice for a jubilant, life-affirming journey. Co-produced by Court Theater, conceived and adapted by Lee Breuer, with music composed by Bob Telson. Thursdays through Saturdays, this September, at the Getty Villa Museum. Book your tickets now at getty.edu. The Manil Collection in Houston, Texas, presents The Curatorial Imagination of Walter Hops, now through August 13th. The exhibition explores the curatorial vision of Walter Hopps, the Manil Collection's founding director and one of the most talented and influential American curators of the 20th century. The critically acclaimed show at the Manil features more than 130 artworks by 70 artists. Find details at Manil.org. The Manil Collection is always free. Robert Motherwell Pure Painting at the Modern Art Museum of Fort Worth is the first exhibition in more than a quarter century to examine the work of Robert Motherwell, a major figure who shaped post-war art. Offering new insights into his evolution as an artist and his impact on modernism, the exhibition is organized by guest curator Susan Davidson and features a selection of 56 visually compelling works from throughout the artist's career, including 12 paintings from the Modern's collection. Although Motherwell was equally proficient as a collagist, printmaker, and draftsman, It is Motherwell's expansive sense of painting that this retrospective explores. Beginning with the abstracted figurative works that dominated Motherwell's first decade of painting as he emerged in the New York art world of the early 1940s, the exhibition highlights the depth of his 50-year career. Robert Motherwell Pure Painting at the Modern Art Museum of Fort Worth from June 4th to September 17th. And we're back. Kate Clark-Lemay, welcome to the Modern Art Notes podcast. Thank
1: you. Thank you for having me.
0: In broad terms, how should we understand art's involvement in the events leading up to and after, in fact, the events of 1898, which made the U.S. a trans-Pacific and trans-Caribbean imperialist state?
1: In broad terms, I think art serves as a record through which we can really use to probe and analyze this very complex, difficult history that has all sorts of twists and turns. And so art captures points of view that otherwise really haven't been presented in straightforward history. You know, it's a real pleasure as a curator when you can use the art as like a primary source document almost to represent an archive that otherwise might not exist. So that's something that Taina Karagal and I, Taina is my co-curator for this exhibition. We were very aware of that when we were curating this, this history.
0: I love that idea that art provides access to ideas that a textual archive might not. Could you put meat on those bones with maybe a couple of examples from the show, paintings or, or other artworks that have ideas within them that maybe are only within them?
1: We have a really interesting Muslin, circa you know nineteen hundred, that was made by Amos Badhart Bull, who was hung pop, hung Papasu, and he was eight years old at the time of the Battle of Greasy Grass, which is also known as the Battle of Little Bighorn. and he witnessed the annihilation of George Custer's Seventh Cavalry. And then when he grew up, you know, he became a record keeper and sort of the historian. Aguila Sioux daily life, and he also made this historic event, you know, in picture through painting on muslin. And so the gift, I guess, that this muslin, you know, which is from the collection of Natural History, the National Museum of Natural History, the gift that it gives us is the point of view of an Aguila Sioux who witnessed, you know, and survived this battle. And we can tell the battle, that narrative through a Native American point of view, through through the object, and present it in a way that might kind of you know spin that normal narrative of Seventh Cavalry, you know, U.S. infantry, very few survivors, that kind of militaristic narrative. We can spin that around, and so that's just one example. And the way that Taina and I curated this. This object was to put a portrait of Sitting Bull on the left and then a portrait of Nelson Miles on the right. And it's very powerful to consider how those two portraits were actually made because Sitting Bull who who was there during the Battle of Greasy Grass he did not fight he was a spiritual leader. He was pursued by Nelson Miles and his followers they you know they left the site and, and moved. They followed the buffalo and they were in Canada, you know, just facing famine when Nelson Miles finally caught up with them and they surrendered. And then they, you know, were imprisoned. So the portrait of Sitting Bull was taken in Fort Randall and who knows, you know, what, if, if he was, what choices he had in that portrait. If he was given a pipe or if it really was his pipe, and the war club that he's also, it's a dance club, not a war club, the dance club that he's holding, if that was his, or if it was given to him. But we do know, by comparison, that there's this portrait of Nelson Miles that he actually used for his frontispiece in his autobiography. So we know all about the choices behind Nelson Miles's portrait. And so there's a there's a high contrast of sort of the the flaws, if you will, of portraiture, you know, who has choices and how they're represented and who doesn't. And it all these three these two characters are sort of you know connected through this major event, which was the greatest defeat of the American military before the Philippine-American War.
0: This is such a great example for so many reasons. And so I'm gonna ask about two of those reasons. First, what does Intermountain encounter in, in the 1880s and 90s have to do with American imperialism and the creation of a Trans-Pacific and Trans-Caribbean empire?
1: The continental expansion across the U.S., we, we've we come to understand that really as a, an expansion of empire, you know, from the 13 colonies across, the you know, the Mississippi and then across the Rocky Mountains and then to the the other continental bounds, the West Coast. That expansion happened, as, as you know, through displacement of Native Americans. They used peace treaties, genocide, land agreements, all sorts of ways. And it's very fraught history. But Ta'ina and I were very adamant that we needed to represent that history because Many U.S. generals like Nelson Miles, you know, they climbed the ranks of the professional army during the the so-called Indian Wars of the 70s, 80s, 90s. And then they later applied this knowledge in the various arenas of the War of 1898 and then, of course, in the subsequent Philippine-American War. So of the 30 U.S. generals that fought in the Philippine-American War, 26 of them had climbed the ranks in their military careers through the Indian Wars.
0: As an historian of early United States California, I know that even goes back to the early 1850s, that army history in far Western North America. One of the things this exhibition, this project, which of course includes a wonderful catalog that will be out soon, includes is a interrogation and in many ways, a revision of the Smithsonian's own institutional history. That Amos Badhart-Bull work you mentioned a moment ago is even more specifically in the collection of what is now called the Department of Anthropology at the National Museum of Natural History. What is the institutional history that you are interrogating and revising? And how important was that to your conception of this entire project?
1: Well, the Smithsonian has so I mean it's kind of born of the the empire movement moment. Its collections benefited hugely from people going out, you know, and collecting during the expansion of the United States and they were collecting from the Philippines, Puerto Rico, Guam, Cuba, Hawaii. There's a lot of ties there. So, Taina and I were you know, it's very hard to curate a history like this and not look at the institution, <laughs> the institution's history. I mean, we would just be like kind of perpetuating a, uh, a lot of bad practice there. So we wanted to make sure that if we did put an object on view, we, we knew its provenance and we could speak to how it was acquired into the Smithsonian. So the... Chris sword, which is this beautiful serpentine edge, kind of wavy looking, you know, sword, very lethal because it was used, it was made in Southern Philippines, the, the archipelago of Sulu and Mindanao. And the Philippines has 7,000 islands in its entire archipelago. So different parts of the Philippines are very distinct culturally from each other. So the Chris sword, you know, you just know from a glance that it's from Mindanao made by those metalsmiths and they were fighting viciously, viciously against the U S infantry that was there and using swords like that, that you could also use in the fields. And so they are employing guerrilla warfare. And we knew that this Chris sword would, would really do a lot of work for us in representing this history because it would, it would, address the guerrilla warfare, but it would also address the spoils of war that consist, I don't know how many, hundreds, maybe thousands of, of weapons, of Filipino weapons are in the Smithsonian's collection. But we needed to kind of point to those, to that collection. And so we actually had requested to ro- to borrow one Chris Sword. And then in the end, we changed it to the one that's now on view because we know the provenance of this one that's now on view. It was seized in 1903 by George Shaw, who was a captain under then Colonel John J. Pershing, who was in Lake Lanao operating a very punitive campaign to remove power from the Sulus. And it was very, you know, it was just one of those wars of attrition and brutal, brutal, brutal. So to have this Chris sword on view was really essential for us. But like I said, we wanted to make sure that we knew its provenance because then we can answer questions and maybe ask better questions through the object.
0: We were just talking about a sword, but of course, this show is at the National Portrait Gallery, and the great majority of works in this show are portraits. What makes portraiture a particularly good lens into the United States trans-Pacific and trans-Caribbean imperial period, and of course, into art's engagement with that period?
1: Portraiture allows us to take this biographical approach, which also allows us to to take a geographic approach. And so Diana and I were thinking about, you know, the Cuban War of Independence and Jose Marti and and really you cannot speak about the war of 1898 which encompasses you know, Cuba, Guam, the Philippines, the former colonies of Spain really, you cannot think about that without understanding the independence movements that were going on in, in those islands. So by acquiring, you know, by not acquiring, because it was, it was a major loan, but by having this portrait of Jose Marti on view, we could really tell that story and also keep the, the narrative pretty tight. So Cuba was, its own history is very much presented within this American history of empire, same thing with the Philippines. You know, we have this incredible portrait of Jose Rizal by by a very important Filipino painter, Juan Luna. And we were able to, through that portrait, you know, pay tribute to the Philippine independence movement that really had its ground foundation in this thinking that Rizal put out there with his book, Noli Tangere. So there's a lot of work, again, that, you know, portraiture does in creating a narrative that's tight but also one that kind of is it can be bound in terms of uh, na- nations and geography and the art thank goodness you know we have these incredible like john singer sergeants we were able to borrow this incredible portrait of queen liliuokalani by william cogswell who knew how to paint brown skin fairly well. I wouldn't say it's perfect, but it was pretty, you know, for that time period, it was pretty good. So there's a lot of really fine art that we were able to incorporate into this show, you know, to showcase how portraiture does do all these great things in telling history and also in documenting history and in, in telling the various points of view. I mean, this show would to- so fall flat in this t- day and age if it was only a show of Americans, like U.S. generals and you know, without taking into consideration other points of view.
0: The Cogswell portrait is such a great get and a great example of how portraiture worked and in some ways still works within an imperial context. There are two key imperial portraits Cogswell made in 1891-ish, one of which is in the show, what should we think or understand about their engagement with an extension of old, old European portraiture traditions?
1: William Cogswell portrait of, of Queen Liliuokalani is very important because it demonstrates her effort to create a diplomatic statement. So about her own sovereignty that she was the legitimate queen of a legitimate monarchy that had been recognized, you know, since 1843 by the the United States. Queen Liliuokalani inherited a throne from her brother. She, he died in 1891, so that was David Kalakaua. And Kalakaua's portrait was also made by Cogswell, and the two portraits are kind of like pendants.
0: They're exactly the same size, yeah, for example. Yeah,
1: they're the same size and they, they, they go well together very nicely. Um, they have the same frames, too. So when she inherited this very troubled kingdom, she needed to figure out a way to communicate with Westerners who did not understand power signified through feather capes, for example. The ula is a feather cape that, native Hawaiians and the Alii, the highborn native Hawaiians, symbolized power, it symbolized prestige, respect, leadership. Those feather capes, we, you know, with with some training, we understand what they mean. But naturally, in the 19th century, you know, people were gonna just disregard them. So the Queen used portraiture as a way to create visual statement that was recognizable to Westerners about her own sovereign power. And it is quite a portrait. It's really, really beautiful.
0: We will have an image of it on manpodcast.com and I think maybe a feather cape as well. One of the interesting things that you do in the forthcoming catalog is you note that there are portraits of key figures that are necessarily absent because they are unfindable, as art often is, or or, or we know that they did not survive. First, why is that? What are some of the reasons, surely related to imperialism, that representations of certain figures are no longer known or no longer with us?
1: Well, first of all, you know, portraiture is flawed and, and we at the Portrait Gallery are really aware of that. We try to recognize new things as, you know, portraiture. So I, for one, think of the Ahu'ula, but. On view as a portrait of David Kalakawa. So we have to expand our our, our sort of definition of what a portrait is. And, and I think that we are working to do that, you know, not only at the Portrait Gallery, but artists as well, obviously.
0: You note in an essay for the forthcoming catalog that there are portraits of key figures in the story of. United States imperialism that are necessarily absent from the show and from the catalog because they are unlocated or because we know that those portraits and images of certain people did not survive. Why is it that those images are lost or didn't survive? Is that related to the construction of empire?
1: Yes, it is. It's also related to just the fact that portraiture is an elite art form. And if you're thinking about an oil and canvas, Most women were not going to be sort of treated as sitters for oil on canvas portraits due to race, gender discrimination. And most people of color, many people of color facing race discrimination, similar, you know, situation. So, you know, when I was trying to write, for example, the, the essay on the Philippines, I was looking for some portraits of really important leaders of the Philippine guerrilla resistance. And I just, just couldn't find them. And it just is what it is, kind of like you have to move on. Um, sometimes I, I'm, I would imagine that they're out there. I might not have had access to the right archives. I did go to the Philippines twice. And I just couldn't, you know, get into the right archives, I'm assuming. But Women were also, you know, something that Tyena and I were aware of that we, there are not very many women in the show. And as someone who's curated, you know, a major exhibition about women's suffrage, that was a little painful for me. And I'm not, not going to lie, women's representation is so important. But we, we had to go with so a portrait of uh, Jane Adams by George DeForest Brush from 1906. That's, that's, you know, a, like 25 by 18 or something, it's, it's not huge, but because she's, she, it's such a beautiful portrait and she's wearing this scarlet sort of overcoat, you know, it, it makes an outsized presence for itself. So the few portraits that we do have of women, like the Queen Liliuokalani portrait, which is the major sightline of the show, I mean, they do a lot of work for for the representation of women. And I am happy about that.
0: A little earlier, you mentioned that in especially this day and age, it no longer and never should have suffices to present portraits or stories related to the military heroism of the imperial nation. But those are here in this show, and you address them critically. And so I wanted to kind of raise an example of how you... Present the familiar, but present it within a revisionist construct. So early on in the project, you represent the globalization of American empire as being substantially a naval project. Listeners have no doubt already noticed that Hawaii and the Philippines are not adjacent to California, for example. There is a picture here uh, from the Army and Navy Club in Washington, D.C., that I think raises what I'm raising rather directly. What is that work and what work do you do on it?
1: Yes, that is the Battle of Manila Bay, May first, eighteen ninety eight, by Ildefonso Sanz y Dominic. And so Sanz was a medical officer on board of the Spanish fleet, trapped in Manila Bay when George Dewey and his white Asiatic fleet steams over from Hong Kong traps the Spanish fleet and then with outstanding firepower sinks every last one of them of those ships and like takes tea, you know, in between rounds of lobbing, <laughs> lobbing shells at them. The interesting part to me about this painting is that it depicts the crumbling Spanish empire, but from a Spanish point of view and You know, the ships from Spain, they're lifting, they're smoking, they're in the process of sinking, they're disorganized, they're kind of clumped together, smoke is billowing out of them. Whereas the U.S. ships are armored, they're covered with steel, they are proudly flying flags of the United States. The first ship, which is the Olympia, which was the flagship of, of George Dewey, who was a Commodore at this point, you know, it shows that it's the flagship with, his, uh, with the one star and a blue flag. And they're all very rigorously lined up. They're in this kind of radical diagonal line that cuts across the picture plane. And it's kind of this wonderful encapsulation of, you know, empire on one hand versus sort of disorder <laughs> and weakness on the other hand. And I think, you know, Phil Kennicott, in his review in the Washington Post, he took this painting and he just ran with it because he he loved the the way in which it presented these paradoxes, you know of of the strong versus the weak. and And Taina and I were kind of pleased because we hadn't really thought about this painting in particular in those ways. but when people visit you know your your exhibitions it's just so nice to see what people actually stri- what strikes them that maybe you know i hadn't really intended but it does make sense and i'm happy i enjoyed the review
0: this is an extraordinary painting for me because it's an 1899 picture and it extends a composition introduced into United States art and in an explicitly and intentional, really imperialist construct. That picture is Charles or Carl, Ferdinand Weimar's attack on an emigrant train from 1856, in which a force constructed into superiority, Anglo-Saxonist settler colonists are moving across the plains and are, you know, air quote, attacked by stereotyped Native Americans. It's the exact same composition that we see here in Manila Bay. And so we can see these visual constructions related to the making of empire running across American art. When when I saw this this picture in your narrative, I, I just stopped cold. It's rarely as clear. Ideology presented in paint is rarely as clear as it is here, which is pretty exciting. Back to... Portraiture. One of the most striking works in the show is a work of an ultimate United States power player painted by an ultimate United States power artist. It's a portrait of Henry Cabot Lodge by John Singer Sargent. It's from eighteen ninety. Why is it here? Which is to say, why Lodge and why Sargent?
1: Well, Sargent. This Sargent portrait of Lodge is is part of the Portrait Gallery's collection, and you know our permanent gallery educators were like, oh man going to the 1898 because it's it's one of those one of those portraits that people want to see so it was kind of a different context really to put him into this context of empire because he was a really important senator from Massachusetts and he he has this background very aristocratic background and he was one of those who believed that his Anglo roots you know, made him better than everybody else. His family had arrived in the United States very early on in, in the settler colonialist history. So to put him into a different context where we're talking about how he is using his influence in Congress to propose you know, revitalizing the Navy, he is supporting the theoretical ideas of Alfred Bayer Mahan who was this naval officer who turned into kind of an academic and published the influence of sea power upon history, which anyways, I am going on, but like when lodge started to put my hands ideas into play through Congress, that's when the U S Navy really starts to get the support it needed to bolster in, in its modernization efforts. And of course, Theodore Roosevelt was the assistant secretary of the Navy under the direction of a very sleepy secretary of the Navy. And, <laughs> and so Roosevelt was very much, you know, kind of making things happen behind the scenes with Lodge. I mean, the two of them were like totally in cahoots. So Lodge is he was elected to the U.S. Senate in 1893. And that same year, he's starting to call for the annexation of Hawaiian Islands and he's saying you know we need these islands because the US west coast is needs defense it needs you know secure commercial lines it needs to have this sort of edge you know it, if the archipelago of hawaii is the US part of the US it'll give the US an edge over competitors like great britain japan germany so there's a lot of emphasis and energy that Lodge brings to the Senate about, you know, concerning empire. And the portrait captures that arrogance quite well, right? Yeah. Tyler? yeah ever. I know you love this portrait. Ever. Yeah.
0: I do. I'm going to, I'm going to pipe <laughs> up here in a minute, but boy, does it ever.
1: Yeah. With the elbow. So Lodge is standing and he's looking off to his left and his right arm is sort of his hand is fingering the gold chain of his fob watch, which is tucked inside his little pocket, you know, of his vest. It's a three piece suit and his left arm is kind of, his hand is hooked into, you know, a pocket of his, of the pants. And it's sort of holding his arm akimbo, which is, you know, this gesture of arrogance that you can see throughout portraiture, you know, well it back into the ages, especially of kings and powerful men. (laughs) <laughs> so there's a lot of recipe that's going into this depiction of Lodge that that Johnson or Sargent captures, but Sargent does it so well and gives him such a kind of this contemplative, staid look on his face, you know. But it's this also this capture of white male privilege and power Just the utter essence of it. This this portrait.
0: He's looking to the viewer's right as if he's looking into the future with great certainty and vision, wince and wince. Lodge, as you mentioned, was a diehard Anglo-Saxonist. Anglo-Saxonism is a construction put together by basically English and United States European Americans that people from a certain Invented imaginary lineal descent were inherently superior to other people. Those people were, were Anglo and Saxons. It was the ideological basis for white supremacy in the United States and what becomes the United States from Thomas Jefferson forward. Lodge was in many ways a or the foremost Anglo-Saxonist of his era. And he gives to the Smithsonian an artwork that is on view right now in your sister institution, the the, the institution you share a building with, the Smithsonian American Art Museum. He he gives to the museum uh, William Whitmore story's sculpture, The Libyan Sybil, in which Story, who was um, a good white liberal of the Civil War era and descended from New England air quotes royalty, in which Story asks whether... Black people have the inherent capacity to participate in American Republicanism, and if they have a future within American Republicanism, one of two sculptures in which story does that work. So I think it's kind of extraordinary and telling and meaningful that, you know, maybe really for the first time ever, a a visitor can go to y'all's building, y'all's shared building, and see a revisionist presentation of Lodge and his influence in a single place and across two but one institutions, across two institutions, but one Smithsonian institution. We have been talking about Sargent and and Grand Manor portraiture, but there's an entire section of the show here on other kinds of objects, specifically kind of more consumer culture objects in, in ways in which consumer culture uses and extends portraiture. A bunch of those objects are cigarette cards. What are cigarette cards and what do they tell us or try to teach us, if that's the right word, beyond, of course, visage?
1: These tobacco cards are really interesting. They are part of a large set that was likely issued, we think by Sweet Capriol Cigarettes, which was a popular brand of cigarettes in both the U.S. and in Canada. This eventually became the American Tobacco Company. And, interestingly, the ATC, American Tobacco Company, that mon- monopolized the tobacco industry. So obviously, including that of Cuba and Puerto Rico. So when the, this tobacco company was creating these kind of like mementos of the War of 1898, they were also revealing their own interests in the economy and their vested interest obviously in tobacco i think the u.s interest in cuba were like 30 million by the end of the 19th century and cuba remains this you know obviously highly contentious topic in terms of diplomacy but for the longest time in the 19th century because slavery in cuba was not abolished until 1886 Certain senators himself wanted to annex the island; others did not, and it, it became this kind of push pull, you know, within U.S. politics around slavery. Four different U.S. presidents wanted to annex Cuba before McKinley, you know, asked Congress for permission to go to war with Spain. But the tobacco cards are this homage to empire. I mean, they're featuring all sorts of heroes, quote unquote, you know, of the Spanish American War, including General. Elwell Otis, who was in charge of the Philippine-American sort of war before, you know, the generals in the Philippines, they were not getting any direction from Washington. And this is not usually how war should work. (laughs) War, War should be, you know, those on the field are receiving goals and, you know, command from people like the president or Congress, right? So there's a lot of advising that's going on, but in the Philippines, those generals were just kind of operating ad hoc uh, without much coalition organized between them and Washington. So Otis was the first general to kind of stick in the Philippines and he, he gets everything shored up and organized and you know soldiers were trained appropriately, and this and that. So it's interesting to see him, you know, being popularized on these cards and then consumed (laughs) by these, uh, whoever was buying those cigarettes, I assume a lot of young men.
0: One of the things I think that the project does a good job of is representing how there were debates within the United States about American imperialism. And often it does so in ways that, Point to alliances or positions that might surprise us. So, for example, comma why is W.E.B. Du Bois here?
1: W.E.B. Du Bois represents one side of an argument that black men were having at this time. The question was, you know, do black soldiers participate in the subjugation of another race? In Warfare like the Philippine-American War because they are themselves going through very difficult circumstances in the Jim Crow era of the 1890s. And Du Bois thought, you know, maybe African-Americans' only hope would be outside the borders of the United States. And he was really torn about how the course of being you know, the course of citizenship rights were being taken away. He was really, you know, as everybody else was at the time, just noting that it was truly uh, hypocritical (laughs) to go out and treat people in the West Indies, Hawaii, the Philippines, so badly, and to be part of the U.S. empire was a real, real problem for him. Other Black men, were less critical. And they, they thought of, you know, kind of war as one way that they could participate as, as full citizens within the United States. So there were Black units, like the 24th and the 25th colored infantries that, you know, crucially assisted the Rough Riders, for example, um, in Cuba. And one of the men who was volunteered, was in the US 25th Regiment that was sent to the Philippines. And his name was Theophilus Gould Stewart. He was this really important educator and clergyman who worked in DC. I think Frederick Douglass was one of his congregants. And Stewart thought, you know, this is the only way that black men can actually have a career, not a job in service, not, you know, functioning as a janitor or a porter, but. Actually, rise through the ranks and get paid more money and have a career. And so although you know black soldiers definitely saw commonalities between their own struggle for basic rights with that of the Filipinos, he was like, "You know, this is the way to press forward for full citizenship for black men." And his story was quite successful. He was stationed in the Philippines. For several years, he was appointed superintendent of schools in Luzon, which is the central island of, of that vast Philippine archipelago. And he was a chaplain as well. So there is a lot of experiences that Stewart had through the U.S. military that he never would have had that opportunity to have otherwise.
0: I should have mentioned that Du Bois is present, as it were, through a photographic portrait by James Purdy that is in your collection. Finally, one of the things I think that this project does a good job of is not just telling stories from the mainland, not only telling stories of the people who are attempting to subjugate other people, but telling stories and presenting people and narratives from the Philippines, from Cuba, from yada yada, excepting Hawaii, which I think we've already talked about are there a couple of objects or artworks that you think are particularly good examples of how y'all presented Cuba or presented the Philippines?
1: When I was researching the Philippines, I, you know, I made these trips to the Philippines and it's a really complicated story. I mean, these because the Philippines in, in itself is so diverse and you know, one narrative of the Philippines does not really do a good job. So we tried to be sensitive to the fact that the independence movement was really led by a loose coalition of people from Luzon and led by Emilio Aguinaldo. And we tried to capture, really just keep the focus on this 1898-1899 this moment. Philippines has a huge, long story. The relationship with the U.S. continues to this day to be very important in terms of uh, global security, especially in the South China Sea. We know that China is a looming force that will be reckoned with, and it's already being reckoned with in terms of naval power. So the Philippines was an important point or segment to this narrative. And and yet, you know, like, I guess this is my just caveat that there's so much more. And we're just hoping that this exhibition is the start of, of conversations, of more conversations. One portrait that we were able to borrow is of Felipe Agoncillo, who was a really interesting lawyer who advised Aguinaldo. And he advised Aguinaldo to broker with the U.S. to actually you know, come to some kind of diplomatic agreement when Aguinaldo surrendered in 1901. And Agoncio, this portrait is by Felix Resurreccion Hidalgo, who was an incredibly important and talented Filipino artist, rivaling Juan Luna in talent. This portrait of Agoncio by Hidalgo depicts a very dignified man, you know, who like Henry Cabot Lodge has a fob, a, a gold watch hanging on a chain. But, you know, he's not fingering it. <laughs> he's just kind of looking straight out. He's got one hand in a, his jacket pocket. The other arm is sort of positioned in a very stoic, kind of calm manner behind his back, like he's waiting. You know, and he's just looking out. He's got this kind of pencil-thin mustache, and his hair is parted in the middle. And the expression on his face is one of calm expectancy. He's just waiting for something. And I love this portrait because I can traveled to Washington DC in 1898 when the peace protocol was signed and asked McKinley in December to have a meeting. And McKinley denied him this meeting. He then went to Paris in 1899 and asked, you know, those who were signing and ratifying the treaty in Paris to please let you know those representatives from the Philippines into these negotiations before they were ratified and he, again he was denied so his story is very interesting it's very important we were able to find newspaper accounts of a manifesto that he wrote to protest the Philippines not being involved in this in the negotiations so in January 1899 he published this memorial to the Senate of the United States, which describes these contradictions between the annexation of the Philippines and the bounding democratic principles of the United States. So he's very, very much like sort of articulating everything that people today would think to point out the absurd, unequal, you know, level of power, between Spain, the US and, and those former colonies of Spain. One last thing I want to say is that Agoncio was pictured in a group portrait as well as Juan Luna and representatives from Cuba and Puerto Rico. And I just want to point out their names. It was Eugenio Maria de Ostos and Eugenio Carlos, oh sorry, Eugenio Maria de Ostos was from Puerto Rico. So, this group of men were captured together in a very grainy photograph that pretty much was lost for a long time. I think it was printed once in a catalog about Puerto Rican identity and history. And so, our curatorial team knew that it was in the Yohannio de Ostos papers at the Library of Congress. But these are Papers that don't have a finding aid, and so we sent in our, our wonderful curatorial assistant Carolina Maestre, to to look for this port, this group portrait of those commissioners from the islands seized by the United States from Spain, whose political futures were determined in the Treaty of Paris signed, you know, outlined in 1898 and signed in 1899. And this group came to the U.S. asking to be heard and they were denied. So Carolina found this very grainy reproduction of a reproduction, right, (laughs) Of (laughs) of a group portrait. And we were able to put it on view. And the contrast in terms of how this group of men was commemorated versus how the group of men who signed the peace protocol were commemorated. It's astounding. So you have the signing of the peace protocol between Spain and the United States, August 12th, 1898, by Theobald Chartrand from 1899, hanging in the White House in president, in the current president's, well, in sorry, it's hanging in the White House in the president's private office on the second floor. And we tried to borrow it for the show, but for all sorts of logistical reasons it just wasn't possible but the contrast between that big portrait that's like 63 by 83 i mean it's like very large group portrait with this tiny reproduction of a photograph that's like you know 5 by 7 inches <laughs> it's just it kind of says everything it really wraps up the 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 point That we were trying to make.
0: The sources from which you got the objects you just mentioned also tell a particular imperial history. The portrait of Agoncio comes from the National Fine Arts Collections of the National Museum of the Philippines. The photograph you just mentioned comes from the Smithsonian's National Museum of American History. And you started that answer with a photograph of Emilio Aguinaldo. And that photograph comes from, and I'm not making this up, History, Nebraska, Which was formerly known as the Nebraska Historical Society.
1: The commissioner's photograph, Tyler, was from the Library of Congress.
0: Oh, sorry. That's um, a helpful correction of a mistake I made.
1: But it probably reinforces your point even more.
0: (laughs) Yeah, true. (laughs) Kate Clark LeMay, thanks very much.
1: Thank you, Tyler.
0: Now open at the Museum of Contemporary Art, Chicago. Gary Simmons' Public Enemy is the first comprehensive career survey of the work of multidisciplinary artist Gary Simmons. Since the late 1980s, Simmons has played a key role in situating questions of race, class, and gender identity at the center of contemporary art discourse. Now, for the first time, through a major exhibition catalog and slate of related programs, visitors will gain a holistic understanding of the complex and profoundly moving work of this influential artist. Plan your visit to see Gary Simmons' Public Enemy at mcachicago.org. Located in the heart of downtown Berkeley at the edge of the University of California campus, the Berkeley Art Museum and Pacific Film Archive is one of the nation's leading university art museums, a locally rooted, globally relevant institution that connects audiences with the most exciting artists and filmmakers of our time. Uniquely dedicated to both art and film, BAMFA hosts more than a dozen art exhibitions, hundreds of film screenings, and countless public programs each year, with a growing emphasis on contemporary work by Black, Asian, and Latinx voices. To see what's on view and plan a visit, go to bamfa.org. Conceptual artist Celia Alvarez-Munoz implements a playful, witty style often characterized by her use of bilingual puns and mistranslations in both text and image. Now through August 2023, explore Munoz's first career retrospective at the recently expanded Museum of Contemporary Art San Diego La Jolla campus. Spanning 40 years and featuring over 35 artworks, visitors will experience large-scale immersive installations, photographic series, and book projects that draw inspiration from Munoz's lived experience as a resident of the U.S.-Mexico borderlands. Plan your visit to the Museum of Contemporary Art San Diego by going to mcasd.org. Welcome back. My next guest is Maya Cruz Palaleo. Their work often addresses their family's arrival in the United States from the Philippines, as well as the colonial relationship between the two countries. Palaleo is one of the four artists whose work Caragol addresses in the forthcoming 1898 catalog. Palaleo's work often extends from research they conducted at the Newberry Library in Chicago in 2017. The library holds significant research collections related to the U.S. Imperial Project in the Philippines, including a watercolor album by Damien Domingo and photographs made by Dean C. Wooster, a U.S. zoologist who worked in the Philippines. Wester's work Was influential in shaping U.S. public opinion about Filipinos. Palaleo's work has been featured in solo exhibitions at the Katzen Arts Center at Washington's American University and at the Wattis Institute for Contemporary Arts at the California College for the Arts in San Francisco. They have been in group shows at institutions such as the Moderna Musite in Sweden, the Nasher Museum of Art at Duke University, the Bemis Center in Omaha, and the National Portrait Gallery. Maya Cruz Palaleo, welcome to the Modern Art Notes Podcast.
2: Thanks for having me, Tyler.
0: I think one of the beginning points of your work is a reclaiming of self-determination and agency from the power that imperialism claims for itself to define the people that the imperial state wishes to control. What role does art play or what role has art played in the construction of imperial regimes in ways that you think you want to address?
2: I think that, I mean, we were just talking about how painting has such a history. I know for me, I came to painting a little bit later. I actually went to school for sculpture. Not that that doesn't have an imperial uh, twist to it. But of course, you know, in in school, we learned the Western canon and uh, all of that is just infused with what imperialistic colonization and I didn't quite catch that part when I was in school. <laughs> it wasn't really included in the context of my art history classes or even education dating b- before that. The way that we learned about imperialism was not the way I'm learning about it now on my own as an artist. And in today's, you know, other people are doing this work as well. And I think that there's a very different way that I'm seeing it today. And for me, kind of undoing that education in terms of my artistic education in art history in particular. It's almost like second education of or, uh, some kind of awakening of all of these canonical Western painters like Velasquez. I, I got into paint The first art history class I ever took was Spanish painting. And it was Velasquez and Boya and all of these Spanish painters. And I was very familiar with Spanish culture, probably because I took Spanish as my language. And since I was in elementary school and then all the way and I made, minored in Spanish in college. But also, you know, being raised Filipino, there's a lot of, they would always say, Oh, this is the same as Spanish words. And my middle name is Spanish, Cruz. A lot of us people think we're, we have, you know, we all have Spanish names because of the colonization there. And so there was sort of this familiarity, but the way that I learned about it, you know, it was, it was sort of more surface. Wow. It's amazing that artists can create these images that have such depth. And the more you look, you kind know, of the more you see and all of the symbolism and everything. But there was a point where it kind of dawned on me and I connected the timelines. And I was thinking, Oh, well, when Velasquez painted Las Meninas, the Philippines was a, one of Spain's colonies. And, you know, this is the same king and queen that reigned over the Philippines, too. You know, it, it just didn't occur to me. It just seemed very separate. And so for me, I think just in terms of entering into art through learning about the Western canon and the painting in particular, I could kind of connect all of those things. Once I started doing this research about the, the Philippines and the United States and that, and that particular timeline.
0: You mentioned that recognizing imperialism and its effects within art history was a process for you because you weren't taught it in a linear way. What were some of the ways in which you began to recognize imperialism within art you loved and valued?
2: So actually when I started doing my own research on my own, going to the Newberry Library and looking at the photographic Collection, the Dean Worcester photographic collection, of the basically the first years of the colonization of the Philippines. I and the Philippine-American War. I saw images that I hadn't seen before and I wasn't familiar with the Philippine-American War. And I, I was just looking at sort of familiar images. They were photographs of American soldiers. In wartime, and of course, they were used as like propaganda. So they're they're looking like they're winning. You know, there's there were some really disturbing photographs of soldiers that were sort of posed triumphantly around dead bodies of Philippine fighters, and that was very shocking and disturbing, yet familiar. I mean, that's not a unfamiliar image to see, uh, uniformed. Military or police uh, officers round bodies, dead bodies uh, of people who, you know, don't look like them. So that for me was kind of the beginning. I, I think that when I saw that, and I saw the also the resemblance of the gestures and the poses of the of the officers, it really reminded me a lot of French impressionist painting in particular like Manet's paintings the Genet sur the Herbe where they're they're sort of lounging in this way that's sort of in a leisure type way and then of course you know Gauguin's paintings in a way that you know he also used these similar type of photographs that were taken that he used as references for his paintings so i was just struck by that and then i started to connect like i was saying with the Spanish painting i was starting to connect timelines between those you know, what was happening in Spain when Velazquez and Goya were painting, that they were, at that time, the Philippines was a colony of Spain, and then also with the United States, um, connecting the timelines there, and then seeing it sort of in the art that I had learned about in, in my art history classes.
0: This might be an absurd question, but hearing you talk about Spanish art and thinking about the 1890s in the U.S., which is a period when Lots of European American artists in the United States were very much in the thrall of Spanish art. Those are art histories with muted palettes. You know, Velasquez mm-hmm. is no fove. Lots of lots of dark colors. I mean, your your palette is not that. Your your palette is vibrant and bursting and exuberant. Is the way you choose to use color a response to that art? Those art histories?
2: I don't I didn't quite directly connect those I, I but I do see that it is a direct response to the sort of deadness of the images in the archives where there's this you know I mean the whole reason why they were collecting things was because eventually the people that they were conquering were supposedly going to go extinct and so there is this sort of feeling of a sucked out sucking out of life there it, the, the images are black and white they're so dehumanized, even just in the ways that at the time, which is actually interesting that you're saying that the Spanish painting was a uh, influence. Cause I, I think that the way that these photographs were taken were probably also influenced by art, historical images, you know, and, and that's kind of an interesting thing too, because how did they, how did these governmental officials like decide how to, they were going to frame and, and compose these photographs and they might seem really haphazard, but they're very intentional and they're a lot of the images that I saw in a lot of these photographic archives are very set up. You know, sometimes you'll even see, you can even see the like the clothes of the, of the people that they're taking photographs of because they wanted them to be bare chested. You see the pile of the clothes in the back corner and then there's a sheet behind them. And, you know, they're posing them in this very particular way in, that's going to serve the way that they want to tell the story. Thinking back to looking at learning about art history in, in school, like they're not really setting up the context all the time. And we're just, you know, let's talk about form and let's talk about, you know, symbolism and all this stuff. But I think that you can look at these photographs in the same way, just on the surface level. But when you actually really deeply look at them, they're, they're very, Uh, composed. And that was something that I noticed when I first started looking at this material that you know they could kind of if you are keeping that in mind then you can kind of see how they're being so carefully constructed. And then of course you see the expression on the person's face who they're photographing and they're not happy. (laughs) I mean it's, it's plain as day but you know that's not necessarily what the accompanying captions would be saying about what what we were looking at. So there's this relationship between what we're seeing and what we're being told what we're seeing by the person who has compiled the uh, archive, which I always find there's a huge disconnect, and it's also like very obvious who they're talking to in terms of when they write the caption.
0: One of... If- Your start with the archive was a visit you made to Chicago's Newberry Library in 2017. Why did you go there? And what did you find there? And was any of it surprising?
2: (laughs) (laughs) It was a really, really significant trip for me. Because when I first started making art, I, I was interested in the archive, but I was interested in my own family's archive. So the way I started thinking about archive or even thinking about doing research, was I had this mentor who is a late uh, painter, Denise Tomasos, who taught me to really be curious about what I was interested in. And once I figured out what I was interested in, to really go super deep into it. So at the time when I met had met her, I was, you know, thinking about memory and loss and grief and particularly in my family because I had lost my mom when I was a teenager. She passed away very suddenly and there were just a lot of unanswered questions that I had and I was also interested in sort of exploring the idea of recreation, of recreation of memories and in in sort of an attempt I guess to sort of bring back something that I had lost which obviously I couldn't do but in the artwork that I was making at the time, I was really interested in creating a space that was like a 360 degree recreation at the time of my grandparents' living room and to see what, you know, what, what that would be like. It was really important to me that everything was handmade or was authentic. Like I pretty much collaborated with my grandmother who was still alive at the time. And I asked my family to bring, to send me all of their photographs of that particular place. And in that process, I ended up amassing a lot of our family photographs archive, basically, videos. And I had already had that stuff, too, because after my mom passed away, our family moved out of the house that I grew up in, and I ended up just sort of taking all that stuff so and being sort of a custodian of it. Um, and it, it informed my work. And so I kind of just did the same thing that I knew that I was doing with my family archive, which was at some point, the family archive, I, I got more curious to see what, you know, what was beyond that. Because the earliest materials that I had for my family archive were baby pictures of my parents who were born in 1947. So I just wow. became curious, like, what what was before that? Where's you know, I don't have access to my grandparents' archives. And I don't have access to my great-grandparents' stuff. So I just became curious, like, well, what happened before 1947? <laughs> and that was the beginning of it. I I just did a very, you know... Google search what Philippine vintage photographs, Philippines pre-1947, because I had known about the war. My grandparents lived through World War II, so I had heard a lot of stories about World War II, but I had never heard really stories beyond that. And so when I Googled this Philippines pre-1947, what came up on the image search were Dean Worcester's photographs of the Philippine-American War. And so that was sort of the beginning of it. And I thought, I'm old school. I'm like, I need to see these in person. <laughs> I need wow, to see these cool. photographs with my naked eyes because it just doesn't do it for me on, on you know, digitally, even though a lot of this information is available digitally and free. So I looked to find out where could I see these images. And I found out that they had a copy of... All of Worcester's photographs at the Newberry Library in Chicago at the University of Michigan, and at the Field Museum in Chicago and so I at the time I was applying for a, a fellowship, a research fellowship, specifically a travel grant through the Jerome Foundation and so I you know proposed it and uh, and I got the travel grant, so I decided to go to Chicago partly because it seemed like both, you know, Chicago Field Museum and Newberry Library both had the, the photographic collection, but the Newberry Library also has a lot of other uh, additional, like a ton of Philippine material that I was also interested in looking at, which were an original watercolor album by Damian Domingo, who is a painter in the Philippines, like in the 1820s. He didn't live very long, but He was an important figure. And then there was also Philippine folklore I was reading by Isabelo de los Reyes, who was sort of like a revolutionary figure in Philippines during the time of the Philippines Revolution. So I I really didn't want to only look at the American point of view. I really wanted to see documents of stories and these paintings by Filipinos. and, And sort of all of that informed the research that I did. And it was totally mind-blowing that and then I was also able to sort of explore their collection and I you know I looked at other manuscripts and things like that but the other thread that I was also looking at at the Newberry Library was that I had been invited by Olana House which is Frederick Edwin Church's house where he lived which is upstate New York near the Hudson River and I had been invited to they do this program where artists do a tour. So it's called artists on artists. And at the time there was a a show up by Teresita Fernandez, which was a great show. And it it addressed a lot of these questions of whose, you know, whose land is this, and it had sort of juxtaposed these images of people who were going on expeditions, I think in the, in South America because church spent a lot of time in South America and then I had gone on this, another artist, Catherine Lord, who was more of like a writer, art historian, and she gave this amazing tour. And it just opened up something in my mind that was, that connected again, another connection of art and empire, which was the Hudson River School painters who were creating an American image or narrative of what Amer- the first American art school or whatever of basically this idea of manifest destiny and the need to tame the wilderness and to, you know, the genocides that happened in this country and westward expansion. And I know in the Smithsonian show they talk about this, but that, that a lot of the military people from the United States had also fought in the what they called the Indian Wars here. So they were using the same tactics on their westward expansion all the way into the Philippines. And, and beyond, when they you know did benevolent, benevolent assimilation and created American schools there. So anyway, it, it, so everything kind of came together because I had to prepare for this this tour. So in my research of the, the Hudson River School painters, I also started reading about I started reading about like race theory and how that became an idea in the United early United States. And you know, all of these ideas in, in anthropology that, you know, people who are not Anglo Saxon were not actually human and you know, that was all part of the research as well, which gave context to what I was looking at in the images pertaining to the Philippine American War and the the archives that are that were built around that and thinking about what how people what people believed at that time.
0: That's really interesting. And I don't want to assert myself too much here, but one of the things I notice in the same photographs you've looked at at the Newberry or at Michigan is that the pressing power, the imperialist power in this case, in those photographs the United States people hold still and look right at the camera lens and the people that the oppressing power is attempting to oppress are very often blurry. They either don't know the conventions of photography, although I kind of doubt that, or they're just not that interested in participating in the imperial gaze. And we see that in, in, in the pictures that, that you've looked at, and I also see that in pictures, say, of Chinese in San Francisco in mm-hmm. the 1880s and 90s. This is all a very long way of saying that one of the things that I think is really interesting about your work is that one of the ways in which you've chosen to address the archives, and there are lots of ways that lots of artists have chosen to address archives over the last generation or two, is that you lock in on figures, people, represented in those pictures, and carry those people and their figures forward into your work. How and why did you seize upon that as a strategy, as something that you wanted to migrate from one to other?
2: That was one of the things that really struck me when I was looking in the archive, And I think before I even saw what I saw in the archives, when I wrote the proposal to go look at this artwork. I mean, sorry, look at these materials. It was really coming from a very personal place. You know, I mean, I, like I said, I, my initial curiosity was, what was the Philippines like before 1947 for my grandparents or for my great grandparents? You know, so I'm, I was kind of looking at it. Maybe it was naive to think that, but you know, in a way I was sort of searching for a visual, something visual that I could imagine this place, which is really an engine of my work because I I was born here and I was born in Chicago and I've never lived in the Philippines. And yet, you know, I, I know it through my mm. family stories or I know it through whatever implicit experiences have been handed down through the generations that things that I maybe don't know, but have inherited from from previous generations that have carried on into you know, our life here in the United States and being a, just being curious about that. And so there was this way of sort of looking at this archive where, and like, like you had mentioned before, like, this is not very well known. I didn't know. I mean, aside from national geographic and seeing Filipinos there in, in those early spreads, which I wasn't familiar with until I started doing this research, but that's what Americans knew uh, Filipinos to be, but it was a very personal search, you know i and I think looking for something that felt resonant to me, and so when I was looking at the images, the people really struck me and and like I had mentioned before, a lot of the captions would say something that felt very you know they'll, they'll say like Oh, the Filipinos are lazy, and yet every picture <laughs> they're working they're like in the field they're <laughs> Not lazy. Like you, you got the, the people writing it are the ones who are lounging around. You know what I mean? And anyway, it's just, I mean, it is kind of comical, but you know, that's America. But um, anyway, I think that a seeing all of that stuff was infuriating to me. I was, I did not know. I mean, I think like something that is not really talked about, you know, we look at a lot of images online and on Instagram and stuff, but I think when you're in a research institution when you're in an actual institution brick and mortar institution and you're around all the stuff that they have and you're around Mm. the structures that they build to hold the stuff like it is really physically energetically intense and I had that experience in Chicago I had that experience at the Newberry Library and the Field Museum and certainly at University of Michigan, I mean, I felt like a teeny tiny little speck of dust. I mean, it really makes mm-hmm. you feel small and it's imposing, you know. And so being in that environment and seeing images of people who were photographed, who had these looks in their eyes that were completely defiant and had tons of agency in the photograph itself, but not, but then the agency is taken away in the way that they're described by the photographer. It's just, it was really empowering to me to, to see that. And then that was why I decided to, to choose, you know, images of figures, people who were, who were staring straight back into the camera or who were, who had this, you know, fire in their eyes because I was also feeling that fire in myself. And so I think my initial, Reaction to spending time in these archives was, was anger. And in a way, you know, when I came back to my studio, I really didn't have an idea of what I, how I wanted to use this material, but I, you know, I ended up just bringing a bunch of, you know, printouts of the photographs that I had seen and I just started cutting it up. I started drawing things that stood out to me and I just started cutting it up and I couldn't have thought to do that. But I think just the process of being an artist and being in the studio, you just, your hands kind of start working and your eyes start working. And I just, I guess I started physically processing what I had seen and experienced. And I think in the end, it was sort of an attempt to, to rearrange the things that I was seeing or remove some of these figures from this very fixed colonial material and, and sort of bring them into a new environment And that's, you know, the the colors and the and then also the influence of what I was reading, which were, you know, short stories by Nick Joaquin and the folklore and the things that I grew up learning, you know, which are all very absent in the governmental archives. So I think there was like a there was definitely like my defiance in in my reaction to what I was seeing was to sort of go the other way and, and just kind of explode it with with life, you know, to sort of defy what, what they're saying, or this notion of, you know, conquering people and then them becoming extinct or whatever.
0: It's really interesting to me what you say about feeling small when you're physically in an institution with an archive and mm-hmm. being angry at what you've seen. Those are feelings and experiences that I've had myself and, and really relate to. Do you think there is a relationship or maybe even like a straight line between those experiences and those feelings and the way in which portraiture has been really important within your oeuvre even even frequent within your oeuvre
2: oh definitely i mean one of the things that i was thinking about from that that newberry library experience was that i wasn't quite ready to jump into the american <laughs> the governmental photographs just yet or the war the war photographs and stuff i didn't want to see that right away so I spent the first week just looking at Damian Domingo's paintings and, you know, for all the institutional like stuff that you have to, you, th- you think you might have like lots of rules and, and and things like that. Actually at the Newberry, the experience for me with Damian Domingo's paintings was very, very intimate. I was able to handle the, the artworks. I could spend as much time as I wanted to with it. And it was just one-to-one and that, is very rare. I mean, I think, you know, you see a lot of art, but they're, they're at a museum, they're behind a frame, but this was like a really extended period with these physical paintings. And that is a different, I had never had that kind of experience before. And, you know, in those research places, they have the, they have the, you know, they have the cotton, cotton gloves, but they also have the magnifying lenses and things like that. So it's like, it's like hovering over, you know, magnifying, lensing all the spots, you know. And, you know, he had, he, the way that he painted these the subjects in his paintings, which was a costume album, which was, which was painted for a foreigner, like commissioned for a foreigner. And, and it was basically Filipinos in different cost, in like native costume. But they were all people that were, that he knew. I think they were from his, you know, immediate community. And the way they were painted was just, Really like the way I always describe it is like loving lovingly detailed and they were just exquisite paintings and you know there would they were at sometimes there might be somebody crying and there would be tears on the face that were silver leafed or there would be gold leaf on the embroidery of the of the shirt that someone would be wearing and it was just so such a great way to enter into the archive, because for all the, you know, feeling small and anger stuff, like there's also things that that are accessible that, I mean, it's, I think it's the only watercolor album that exists of his in the world. So that, that was really special to me. And I think after having spent time with that, those works, and then switching over to these sort of haphazard, anthropological, you know, measuring your skull type of photographs, where people literally had numbers on their chests, you know, or their shoulders, it was a total sh- sort of shock to see that the way that the people in those photographs were treated. After having spent time with these paintings, so I think that was that really informed what what you know what I ended up how I ended up working with the material afterward, which was you know treating the the subjects with dignity and, and portraiture. You know, meant it meant a lot to take the time to you know, paint them with that same loving detail and care that I saw in the Damien Domingo paintings.
0: I am curious about the ways in which or whether the development of your palette and the way you construct pictorial space is related to the intensity with which you've been looking at the archives we've been discussing. So if if, if somebody, and we'll have a link to this on on Mm manpodcast.com, somebody goes to your website and clicks on the painting tab, they will find a single page of the last 10 or 11 years of your paintings. Mm -hmm. And as you scroll from the bottom to the top, the paintings are getting brighter, the brushwork is getting denser, the compositions are getting denser. Mm -hmm. In all ways, intensity is increasing. Is there a relationship between the way the palette intensifies and pictorial space and all that intensifies and your embedding yourself, as it were, in this archival work?
2: I think so. I I think that there definitely has been a more denseness of the work has started to kind of crop up. And I, I think that the in the beginning with the sort of more family archival stuff, it was sort of... I guess I was thinking about painting in this way that there were certain stories that were told over and over again. For example, stories about my father and his his siblings and the kind of trouble they got into that my grandma liked to tell me the same stories over and over again. And they were kind of like vanilla. And I loved hearing them, you know, but they were mm. they were always sort of, you know, G-rated. You know, they were like kids stories, I guess. And as I got older, I really wanted to know more. I wanted to know what would... I mean, she did tell me sort of more gory stories about her experiences with Japanese soldiers during the war and sort of evading really horrible things like getting raped, which was what was happening to young women like her and girls, basically. And, and people, you know, I just recently learned that one of my great uh, my great uncles was tortured and killed in the, in World War II by the Japanese soldiers. And so anyway, I, I do hear those stories too, but there was something about hearing the same stories over and over again that, that I felt like, okay, well, once I started learning more about the context of, you know, these stories, I started to wonder what they weren't telling me and what, you know, thinking about oral histories in general and whoever's telling the story, you know, they have full full control of what they want to embellish or what they might want to remove or withhold from the story. And so I think, you know, in the beginning, I was thinking like these sort of like the people or the places, certain areas of it would be sort of thicker in terms of paint application. And maybe the color was a little faded because it was a image of the past. And then there would be parts that were literally just kind of more of a wash and and sort of washed out. And, And that was kind of from looking at family, old family photographs where you know if you put you take a picture in the flash and your fingers in front of the flash there's some big dark spot like there's just parts that are just erased so i was thinking about those mm-hmm. erasures and the comparison of a, a part of the painting where paint is really built up and then the other part where the paint is just really a wash or it's just the ground of the painting and mm-hmm. the more and more i guess i the deeper i get into the kind of research that i'm doing and also certainly the most recent paintings they are all based on a particular place, which is a, a mountain, two mountains. So these mountains have really dense flora and fauna and they're, they're like forests and waterfalls and, and really, you know, it's starting to move into the land of the forest, of the mountains and the stories about that. So I think the more and more I sort of get into it, like it becomes so much more complicated. It feels so much more complicated and it also feels like I've been thinking a lot about, you know, this idea of landscape and landscape painting and as opposed to how we learn landscape painting as a one point perspective and the, there's always a horizon line and there's, you know, maybe they'll, maybe a Thomas Cole painting will have a tiny figure in there just to show either that this figure is, is about to get extinct or just a, a a way to show scale and show how actually large the landscape that we're looking at is in relation to the figure in the painting. And so like all of those things I've been thinking about and, and panoramic paintings where uh, they were sort of used as entertainment and they had this sort of linear travel vibe to it, you know? So I've been thinking a lot about those, I guess, genres of painting and really just Thinking about the whole painting as not having a hierarchy instead of dividing it in the middle where there's a horizon, the sky and land, where it's so, it's almost like so dense that there's no central figure and there's no differentiation between even the human beings or the plants or animals
0: in the most almost. recent. What's that? Not almost. Oh yeah, not, not almost. I mean, you, you totally get there.
2: Yeah, yeah, that, that's kind of where it's been going. And I, and I think about that in terms of, like I had mentioned, a lot of the, a lot of the things that I, or, or the things that exist in the, in the archive really have this, like I said, deadness to it. And a lot of the work, most recent body of work about these two Mm -hmm. mountains that they're, they're, they're mountains that have lore about them and locally. And I had heard about these stories about the, the mountain that looks like a sleeping person and that there's a spirit that lives there who has a name and, you know, all of the things that you hear about if you, you know, you're local to that area, you kind of know these things. And then the other mountain is the spiritual mountain where many people go to pilgrim, pilgrimages. And none of that was evident in the particular uh, photo album that I was looking at, which was uh, Mm. from a botany school that was, at the base of the, of one of these mountains. And I actually, when I came back from Michigan and and I started talking to people who, I have a mentor who's a Filipino auntie who is, you know, teaching me about Filipino spirituality. And she had been already talking to me about this place. And I found images of it in the archive. And that's, that's what kind of sparked this last body of work because, you know, it's like this mix of, what I've learned through all these different sources, and it's, its just fascinating to me. And and I think I think that's one of the things that is starting to sort of grow in the work. You know, I sort of feel like I'm moving away. I don't feel as shocked and angry anymore looking at these images. And and it and it wasn't really important to me to like paint a, a portrait or a face. But also, there's also something about keeping it maybe more opaque or mysterious and unreadable. That has been interesting to me lately, thinking about that.
0: Finally, we've been talking about painting, because you make a lot of paintings. But you have also used the collections we're talking about, specifically the collections at the University of Michigan's Museum of Anthropological Archaeology. Whoever named that museum should be shot. (laughs) You've used collections from that museum, and sculptural installations. What, if anything, for that matter, changes when you migrate your address from two dimensions, paintings, to three dimensions, sculpture and installation?
2: In recent years, I've sort of returned to sculpture, I guess. I I, I mean, I I I I studied... You
0: got your MFA in sculpture. Yeah, uh,
2: so I studied sculpture in my MFA, and then I... Sort of just full on switch to painting. I think the thing that just keeps coming up in terms of, you know, not only what I'm learning from doing the research in the archives and also interrogating these historical materials is that one thing I, f- I feel very strongly, and I had mentioned this like physically in physical form as well, is that, you know, the, the institution wants to have a very strong voice and sort of a one overarching narrative. And that feels definitely stifling. It's not the experience that I've had just in my life. And I think that in the paintings, as well as in the sculptures and the installations, there is a multiplicity that is happening simultaneously. And, you know, thinking about not only the materials in the archives or the way that institutions sort of present them in this one sort of one monolithic narrative, but also in the materials that I'm using and in the paintings, you know, also thinking about time and, you know, time being more of a cyclical or palimpsest type of layering experience. And so I feel like when it moves into 3D or 2D or, whatever it is or if it's a borrowed object or if it's light projections you know that's that's talking to like a a full sense not that a painting can't address you know space and and the space that a person a viewer is actually in but i mean i think that there's so much that something that's made out of clay can say that is so tactile that you know, it's it's like a sibling. It's like a sibling of the paintings. I mean, I, a lot of the the works that I'm making now. You know, it's sort of the same process. They come from the same references. Process is is really different. So I think that yeah, I think there's just a sort of expansion of the work right now and the multiplicity of what it can be. And and you know, in particular, bringing in the object from University of Michigan. You know, that was I think. Sort of similar to my reaction when I was painting, you know, looking at the images and and sort of being struck by a particular gaze or a look that uh, a figure had in in a a photograph. And I would decide that I would want to make a painting about that. Similarly, you know, spending time in the anthropological archives where it's all objects there is definitely that, that really had an effect on me too. And I, and I wanted to bring that into the, the most recent exhibition and Monique Malache. And, you know, part of it was just wanting the whole exhibition to be immersive. So I was working on a large scale paintings are large scale. And then the, when you walk, first walked into the gallery, the, you know, there's a the light installation and there's sculptures around this, the Benig, which is a sleeping mat that was loaned from the university of Michigan. And, I, I It was really important to me to bring in that experience, that sort of 360-degree experience of what it was like to be in the archive. Of course, it's different because I'm making a, a show with sculptures and paintings and things, but but I wanted the viewer to sort of have an embodied experience because I think that's it's really what this is all about, is our embodiment, you know, walking through the world. And for me, at least, you know, there's... Not just one answer of what that's like, you know, who, or, or this idea of identity, which I think is, it's in the work, but it can be like a slippery slope in, I think, in, in art of like identity and the work, it's in the work, but it's not, that's not it. That's not the only thing. So I think, yeah, just a sort of expansion and sort of folding in more materials and sort of creating a, an immersive space was were were ways that i thought maybe i could bring that in
0: that gallery show was up this past spring it was titled Mm -hmm. days later down river we'll have a link to it on the show page on manpodcast.com maya cruz palaleo thanks very much
2: thanks so much tyler
0: that's all for this week's show the modern art notes podcast is edited by wilson butterworth